Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. Today we will be beginning Book 5 of the Ascension edition of Confessions. This bonus episode is an introduction to the reflections that you'll hear for the next few days. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. All right, well, let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work, too, may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Alrighty, here we go. Book five, getting ready. I've asked the last couple of times, Father Gregory, are you ready for book five? Yeah, I, I think so, you know, but you never know until you're done, because then after you're done, you're like, I think I was ready, because now I'm done. But better to verify, you know, at the outset, whether you think you're ready. So I think I'm ready, but I'll know that I'm ready after having completed the task. Okay, well, we'll, we'll reassess at the end to get a better grasp. Um, so everyone needs to, to buckle up as we dive into book five here, because it is like the travel adventure book. We go all over. Well, we go to three places. Three places, if you count where we start, there are four. And no, it's just three. Sorry. So he's in Carthage and he's he's going to move to Rome and he's going to move to Milan. But those are some big moves. You know, if if you were doing that within the span of four or five episodes, it's going to be a lot. So it's good, though, because it keeps things moving. It's exciting. It's like we're going somewhere, making progress. So, yeah, here in book five, we pick up with St. Augustine, who is 28 years old, so late 20s, moving on. And he's been in Carthage for a while. And at this point, he's made a sort of he's built a reputation, made a name for himself as an orator, uh, a rhetorician a practicer of rhetoric. And there are a few things, a few big things that happen that prompt his his moves from Carthage to Rome to Milan. So I'll at least outline that real quick, and then we can spend some time talking about those. So in Carthage, he begins to grow a bit weary of his students, but perhaps more profoundly and more importantly, um, he has the opportunity to meet with Faustus, a sort of renowned Manichaean bishop, who he hopes will help answer some of the questions he has about, about creation, about evil, about all of the things that we've been talking about. Then, uh, dissatisfied with all of that, he moves to Rome because there seems to be a promise of better students in Rome. But this is a great lesson in the grass is always greener. Rome doesn't prove to be all that great, nor do its students. And he takes up a, a post in Milan. Um, and it's in Milan that he meets St. Ambrose, which begins to move him more promptly to his conversion. But 
that's still a bit away. So let's start back in Carthage. Let's say, I don't know, let's say a little bit about this Faustus, about Augustine's expectations, sort of what's building here. And then we can talk about Faustus um, and give a sort of overview of that, you know, in anticipation of reading in more detail in the episodes to come. Yeah, I think part of what's so exciting about the meeting with Faustus is St. Augustine brings his expectation and he's deceived, right? Or he's let down. And as a result of which, he has to kind of bring that expectation elsewhere, kind of transpose that expectation into a different register. And this helps me to appreciate the confidence that we have as Catholics, because it's such a great gift to repose upon an intellectual tradition of 2000 years. Even if we don't read all of the authors of that intellectual tradition, we know that regardless of what types of objections we're going to encounter, uh, we're going to be able to respond. Maybe not at the moment. You might just have to simply say, I don't know or not entirely sure, but that we can, you know, ask somebody who does, you know, make reference to your parish priest or look up the fathers of the church, you know, wherever they can be found, newadvent.org or something like that, and then search, you know, what have we said over the course of the years or what have wise and holy Christians taken to be a good, you know, response to this particular question. And um, it's, it's always fruitful. That engagement is always fruitful. Where you see the you know, that like here, the Manichaean sect, not only is it thin, it's feeble, it's sickly, it's weak, uh, because their best, their brightest, their most wise, their most adept is unable to respond to the objections that St. Augustine brings forth. So yeah, on the one hand, he's deceived, he's let down, but on the other hand, it makes us appreciate what we have in the Catholic Church. Yeah, I think that makes sense to me. So this this man Faustus, I don't Augustine doesn't spend a lot of time explaining his his background or his his sort of I mean he says a little bit about his pedigree, his lineage, his education, these sort of things. We know at least from Augustine what he says in the chapters to come that he's he seems pretty lacking in his intellectual capacity though he has some oration skills, he's read some but I think there's, it's a sort of, in Augustine's mind, um, at least how it comes off the page, is is that he his expectations don't match the reality of, of what's to come. And uh, for the reasons, you know, that, that Father Gregory just enumerated, that, that this Manichaean sort of quote-unquote theology or philosophy is, it's weak, it's thin, it's feeble, I think those are things that you said. But it's also just not based in truth. You know, one of the criticisms that we've heard and will continue to hear is that it's just sort of expansive fables that don't actually kind of get at the truth. They just kind of talk around the truth. So, yeah, so Faustus doesn't do what Augustine was hoping. In fact, he kind of does the opposite. Rather than solidify St. Augustine's Manichaean identity, he, he kind of breaks it down a bit, you know, he weakens it, Augustine becomes more disillusioned. Um, but I think he was on the, I don't know, you can you can say otherwise if you think so, but it seems that Augustine was on that that path of disillusionment for for a while, this being unsatisfied with, with the life, with the answers or lack thereof, and these sort of things. So it seems to me that reading the actions of St. Augustine, that the Faustus was kind of like, he was putting all this, all his eggs in this basket as, as to be a turning point or, and, and when Faustus isn't that, he's kind of, begins to sort of step away. Yeah, I think this encounter with Faustus brings before our eyes a theme in the ancient church, namely that the church preserves not only the truth, but also the memory of error, because it's an integral feature in her self-understanding. And I'm not saying that we need error in order to recognize the truth, but it's often in confronting a certain error that we drill down on the truth or that we have to sort out what we really mean by the truth 
And you'll find this in the history of the church's ecumenical councils. But here in the case of Faustus, most of what we know about Faustus, we know from St. Augustine. It's like with St. Irenaeus of Lyon. Most of what we know about early Gnosticism, we know from St. Irenaeus of Lyon. So maybe you'll watch a History Channel special about those sneaky Christians of the first few centuries who like knew of other legitimate forms of Christianity but are constantly trying to suppress them because they're all malevolent and manipulative. But that's just not that's just not true. There's this sense, you know, among ancient Christians that the truth will out and these are the types of things that we need to discuss in the marketplace. We need to discuss in open air so that people won't be led into error, so that they won't stumble at a scandal that's um, not sufficiently addressed by the church's pastors. And so Faustus, you know, he's he's kind of known for eloquently avoiding the question, for eloquently, you know, shifting the, the perspective of his auditor to whatever it is that he wants to direct their attention to. So it's not like that you know, you don't have that Christian confidence there because he at some level must be aware of the fact that his reasoning is is deficient. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's shortly thereafter, after this encounter with St. Augustine, that he's sent into exile and we hear very little of him afterwards. But St. Augustine will dedicate a whole treatise to him, Contra Faustum, uh, in which he, he goes through the various errors and redresses them in turn. So, the church is not worried by these things. The church is not thrown for a loop by these things. She actually retains the memory of them so that she can be even more confident in the truth which the Lord gives. Boom, as you might say. So Faustus kind of puts a point on St. Augustine's existence in Carthage. And after after all of these interactions with Faustus and after, or in conjunction with his sort of growing dissatisfaction with the pupils in Carthage, St. Augustine decides to move to Rome. Um, and the big thing here, there might be something else that sticks out for you, but the big thing here is how he treats his mother and his moving to Rome. So he moves to Rome, and when he's preparing to move to Rome, St. Monica asks that she either go with or or that he stay, or you know that, that she doesn't want to be parted or have him go to Rome kind of on his own, and St. Augustine's not willing to do that. So he steals away, he goes in the middle of the night and, you know, he recounts his mother's reaction of finding that Augustine has gone, you know, despite her wishes. And yeah, it's, I mean, he kind of breaks her heart in that. Um, you know, I think it just highlights St. Augustine's sort of flightiness, his restlessness, that, that, that there's this search for something, for contentment, for whatever is, is just so consuming that he just acts, you know, without prudence or, without a fullness of prudence or whatever. I don't know if you have other thoughts on it. It's just, it's a sad thing for me. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, he's 28. Um, and it's clear that St. Monica likes him a lot. And I don't know if there were such thing as helicopter parents before the invention of helicopters, but she hovers like a spirit over the waters. And so different cultural setting, different social context, how closely families would have been held together in this time versus at the present time. But still, you need to cut the cut the apron strings. And it's just not clear to me if Augustine is doing that in a good way or in a bad way. Obviously, his mother's holy, but you can be holy and still clingy. <laughs> but I think that you can see throughout the course of their relationship that they're together or not, you know, alternatingly. Even when we'll hear in book eight, when St. Augustine converts, he, he bops right back into the house, you know, the garden of which he is hearing this voice, totally at lege, uh, he'll bop back into the house to tell St. Monica. So so clearly she's close at hand, even at the age of 31. And so I think that, I mean, this is something that everyone has to navigate in his relationship or her relationship with with parents. It's like, how how close is close enough and how far away is far away enough? 
Because on one hand, you know, we want to establish our own identity, our own spiritual identity before the Lord. But on the other hand, too, it's like one of the greatest helps or one of the greatest graces in our life is family. And and the Lord uses family to to pour out his grace upon us. So everyone's got to kind of sort through that question within the setting that they find themselves in. So it's a tough call. Well, we're going to agree to disagree on this. So <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think St. Augustine's reaction to it and his his sadness and making his mother sad. I don't know. I think he regrets it, but your points are well taken. So <laughs> thank you. Listeners can make up their own decision on St. Augustine's adherence to the fourth commandment or, or not, you know, so <laughs> there you have it. So he moves, he moves to Rome and his time in Rome um, is kind of punctuated by not a ton. I mean, he teaches and he finds the students just as sort of uninterested or uninteresting or undisciplined as they were in Carthage. I mean, I guess kids are kids and being taught rhetoric is probably not the most exciting of things. Um, and then he also gets sick in Rome. He he falls ill, but recovers. So that's something that we'll, we'll cover, though it's not, you know, it's not a huge kind of thing for guys and he just kind of recounts it a little bit. I don't know. Do you have more to say about Rome at this point? We'll cover it in our covering chapters, but do you have more to, to say about Rome? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a good lesson, like you said, and grass is always greener. That's not to say, by comparison, that the grass is never greener or that the grass is always dead or that the grass is same on both sides of the fence. Obviously, you know, you can improve your state, you can improve your condition. We shouldn't just resign ourselves to a terrible work life or to a terrible whatever it is just because we don't think that the Lord is good and generous. Like the Lord is good and generous, and he might make it such that we experience a modicum of earthly happiness, but sometimes we we fail to address the current offer of happiness, like we fail to recognize how the present circumstances might be, in fact, a royal road to the heights of holiness. And in failing to receive, to profit from the grace of the present, then we look to future graces, which might never lie in store. And so, you know, whether St. Augustine is to, again, be faulted or blamed for grass is always greener, it, it all unfolds within the providence of God. And it leads him to Milan, where he hears St. Ambrose and where he meets certain Christians who encourage him in his own conversion. So God God writes, you know, he writes straight with crooked lines, as we've said a couple times to this point. But it's also chastening for us to recognize the fact that our holiness is to be found in and through the circumstances of the present moment, not by, you know, avoiding them somehow or just re-describing them or, you know, like hopping over to the next city so that we can have a new hand dealt our way. Yeah. And that'll kind of bring us to the end of the travels. So Augustine, unimpressed with Rome, decides to take up a teaching post in Milan or a public speaking post in in Milan. And it's in Milan that he meets St. Ambrose, who we'll spend some time with in the coming episodes as St. Augustine is introduced to St. Ambrose. But it's worth saying, at least at the outset, that St. Ambrose is, it's at St. Ambrose's influence that St. Augustine finally converts. Uh, we have to wait a little bit. It's not in this book, uh, so hold your horses. But um, St. Ambrose has a, has a huge role in St. Augustine's life and also a role in St. Monica's life. So we'll, we'll get to know St. Ambrose a little bit more as, as we forge ahead in the coming days and through the coming pages. Um, I think just a couple, well, just one thing, and Father Gregory, you just alluded to this and in, in, how it is that the Lord uses our lives to draw us to himself. As as you said at the top of the episode, there's a lot of movement, a lot of travel from Carthage to Rome to Milan, 
Faustus, St. Ambrose, St. Monica, you know, there's, it's, it's quick in this book um, as far as that goes. But it's, it's a good opportunity to reflect on, on our Lord's will, on his providence, on his providential care for St. Augustine as he's moving about and as he's approaching his, his conversion or getting closer. We're still a little ways out, as I've said. But a theme, of course, that has to do with is, or is at the center of St. Augustine's confessions is God's providence, his loving care for him. And we will see it at work, continuing to work in his life as he wanders through these cities and travels and people and all the rest. So any final thoughts here before we embark on, on book five of the confessions, Father Gregory? Yeah, I think just one final thought about providence. Sometimes we think about providence as like a cheat code almost, like doesn't matter what you do, like God's going to make it work out in the end. That's not really what providence means. Providence means that God knows all things and he knows them creatively, which is to say he doesn't like know them as like, oh wow, look at this thing going on here. God knows them interiorly. He gives them to be, he gives them to act. Uh, but in giving them to be and giving them to act, he, he guides all things back to himself. You know, taking proper you know, care of or paying sufficient attention to the thing itself. So it's not like we're all part of a Borg and we all lose our individuality or our personality in the process. So God's treasuring each precious thing because each precious thing represents, you know, uh, a particular expression of his divine love, but that he's, he's causing us to interact amongst ourselves and with the rest of creation so that we return to him, so that we ultimately return to him in a big blaze of glory. That still admits the possibility of failure, but God is always kind of interposing his grace or proffering new invitations so as to lead us back. There's a Dominican of the last century who said that at every moment of every day, God is offering to even the most hardened sinners at least the grace sufficient to pray. And the grace sufficient to pray isn't necessarily the grace of you know justification or salvation, but that grace, if welcomed into a heart, can mature, can grow, can fructify, and then down the line, it might in turn become something like a like a grace of justification or a grace of salvation. So I think that's what we see in Saint Augustine's life: are these constant promptings, these constant invitations, all of these little indications that God is working strongly and sweetly in His life, in accord with the lives of all those whom He meets to draw them back to Him. There you have it. Intro to book five. Get excited. We'll pick up with the first chapters in our next episode. So stay tuned, listen in, read up, all the rest. And until then, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics.